Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. No, no. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. And you like to have fun, right? Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hey, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, joined by this guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, we've got an awesome guest in studio. Well, I'm super excited about this because we have somebody who's doing something groundbreaking. We have today in the studio, Dr. Brad Doc Fagley, Mm -hmm. and we're going to go by Doc from now on because that's how your patients know you. That's how your co-hosts of the Whiskey Bros podcast that he's with two other guys. Who are they? Yeah. Yep. Uh, actually three, but one oh. of them's a ghost bro. Oh, so, so he's never around. So it's just like the three of us. <laughs> so and it's Chance Overton. Yeah. And Heath Taylor. And Heath right? Taylor. And, and we mostly have fun on that podcast. It's not professional. It's usually explicit. So it's, it's a cool time. Well, because of that, you get to get that all out to focus on other things, which is your practice. Right. Yes. And so Dr. Fagley graduated from Texas A&M University. In 2008, uh, he worked in family practice. He currently made a big decision to change the model because while he was working, and you're going to get into this, you Mm -hmm. kind of felt like I'm seeing, which is why I'm excited about this, that you felt like you could give direct primary care as a totally different model. Right. And that's what I'm really excited to hear about because offering a different solution to seeing 100 people a day is the key. You just can't do it well. You know, you can't see a hundred patients a day. And when a, uh, when you're an employed doctor, like a lot of these are, they're just telling you to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually, I have a family practice friend who they got bought by Mm -hmm. one of the things and he just showed up to a a, a schedule that was already pre-filled for him. Right. I could not imagine. But there again, that was my life uh, that I lived for several years. Uh, But I'll just, well, let's, let's take it like this. Okay. So I love my job. It's like I wake up like this is really like my reality right now. Like I wake up in the morning and I'm super excited to go to work. Okay. And uh, before we had started Enzo Direct Care, I say we. Okay. So this is my nurse practitioner and my business partner, my 50-50 business partner, Casey Carlisle. Uh, We were in a very typical family medicine situation. this was not the case back then. And, and right now, uh, Enzo direct care, uh, is over two years old. Okay. We have a pretty stable staff of nine and, and, and a healthy patient population, but not totally healthy that we're not needed. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so it's, it's literally an, joy to go into work every day because I get to sit down with a set of patients and I get to explore their problems with them. And honestly, I would say that, okay, I, I learn more from my patients than they learn from me. Like I truly feel 
that way. And, and, and it's because we're not quick in and out. I sat with a patient this morning for like an hour and 20 minutes. He's one of my favorite patients. And if it weren't in violation of HIPAA, I'd tell you who he is. Cause he's an awesome dude. Uh, but yeah, we just go off the rails. We, we talk about his life and, and his problems and his family and then the world's problems. And, and, and so honestly, it's like therapy for me every day. So so I'm blessed. Well, right from the jump, you're talking about a visit with a patient that lasted over an hour. And I think most people's experience when they go to a typical general practitioner, family practitioner, yeah. it's going to be 10 to 15 minutes. Oh, if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Right, right. And and because, and, and part of this like branches into a bigger conversation at, such as, okay, what are medical problems? Okay, but the uh, by the time the the provider walks in the room, he's already looked at the sheet, okay, or the computer screen. He's already prefigured what his moves are, you know, like, okay, this is what I think is going on. This is what we're going to do. Walks in there and, and, and then, well, encounters the patient and, and there's little room, even from a sheer time frame for true exploration. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> forgot to hit the button. Yeah, there, there's a little room for true exploration, but but now I actually have the, uh, I guess the flexibility to empty my brain before I walk into the patient room and mm -hmm. and to sit down with them and say, okay, what's going on? And 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 I'll say it has grown me as a provider. I know it's grown my whole staff. Like, uh, and th and then we get to sit down at the end of the day and maybe take our most interesting cases and then unpack them together. And and that's quite cool. So you uh, and I've known each other for several years. Yeah, I remember when you had a traditional practice. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you and Casey to number one decide that model wasn't number one going to work for you? And oh, number this two, is interesting. how did you? Yeah. Settle upon what you got now. You know, I won't say we were su suicidal because you, if you're a medical professional, you don't say you have a mental health condition, right? You know, it's a, you just don't do that. But, <laughs> uh, but we were involved in a practice where we weren't making money. We weren't seeing enough patients, right? And, but, and it was a value-based care model, meaning that the, the practice is, trying is is grouping together with other practices in order to cover the MRI scanner and to cover the physical therapist basically to sell ancillary services so is it a multi-specialty clinic that you're in no we're family medicine but we're in a part as part of a ACO oh right can you explain what that is real quick yes uh, accountability uh, yeah, accountability care organization, right? Uh, so basically, this is this is a newer entity, and this is and 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 it was started by CMS, the people who have Medicare, uh, several years ago. But somebody had this thought that okay, you take doctors' offices and you group them together, and you say, okay, you figure up the m most cost-effective MRI scanner, the most cost-effective physical therapist, maybe, you know, network to uh, put some controls in place as far as cost for hospitalization, mm -hmm. overutilization. And, and, and then the 
savings that you generate from that coordination of care, okay, the, the savings you generate, we're going to give part of it back to you. And, and so that was the formation of ACOs or accountability care organizations. Um, and, and not, not a small thing, but unfortunately primary care is on the bottom kind of rung of those ACO organizations. Uh, we're on the bottom rung of the value-based care model. And so we get very little, I say we, I'm not part of the we anymore. Sure. Right. Uh, Cause I, I went a separate way, but, but family practitioners, primary care providers uh, are often having to justify their negative cost centers. Okay. By utilizing very specific, uh, up, upper level testing, upper level consults. Uh, and so, and, but this turns into, I would imagine a physician being in a, being put into a position where if they're going to have these negative mm-hmm. cost center applications to their practice, now they're concerned that, well, we just need to see more patients to offset this. We just need to make certain that we are ordering enough tests on everybody that can qualify so that we can offset this. And suddenly you're, not really doing healthcare, you're doing financial management. Right, right, and and that's very much the case we're in, and and I called it moral injury, and I really think that's what it was. And it wasn't that I was, you know, I didn't look at my cost sheet, you know, every day before I started seeing patients or anything. It's 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 like you go, and and you see thirty patients a day, okay, and and maybe thirty. Five, if it's a heavy day, maybe twenty-five. If it's if it's a light day, that's me. That's not my cost center. Uh, but then you know, you're doing that day in and day out, and you're going home, and you're not feeling like you fully like gave the patients their due, right? And and then you show up at the business meeting like the next week, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you you you're not seeing enough patients." And, and, and then that happens like month to month over and over. And, and, and there's this imaginary hole. And I say it's imaginary because this is a value-based care model. There's supposed to be a hole, right? right? Yeah. The, the role of the family practitioner is to generate business for the rest of the care model. We are the gate, like we shuttle the business into the care model. And, and so there's supposed to be a hole at the family practitioner, but there's imaginary hole, but it's, it's, it's imaginary, but it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And and you're feeling like you're, you're not serving the patients and you're not serving yourself from a business standpoint. Uh, and, and so what gives, and, and the problem is the care model. Mm-hmm. And right. then you're at this business meeting and not only are you not seeing enough people, but they're yeah. like, oh, and your colleague, let's all congratulate Joe Blow here who was able to order 20 MRIs last week. Right, right. Uh, and it's generate like we wanted, some revenue. We needed to use specific imaging companies, specific, uh, specific home health, specific uh, hospital referrals, okay? And, and it's like all of a specific pharmacy Okay. And, and it's just not, it, it wasn't care. It's interesting because that right. model is actually transcendent. We're going to get into this part of it now yeah. into the insurance world. So right now yes. I get an annual report 
and I get a grade by mm-hmm. an insurance company. And the grade is based on how, uh, how much money you basically cost them. Yeah. And then they give me a grade. Well, here's the deal. I treat a lot of inflammatory bowel disease. Right. I'm getting x-rays on people. Right. I'm checking blood. And they'll give an A to the person. And then they get put uh-huh. in a tiered status. And if somebody is refusing to treat difficult cases, things like that, they actually get rewarded by the insurance company. Yeah. And then I, I looked at it once. So like the office manager comes over and she's like, hey, you're supposed to look at this. United Healthcare gave you a grade. I looked at it once and I could not help it affecting my decision-making. And so I was like, oh no, screw this. I'm never looking again. I don't care if I have an F. Exactly. I can't, I can't yeah. do that because I'm looking at you going, you really need a CT, but I'm already, oh, I've already ordered four mm-hmm. CTs today. Mm-hmm. United Healthcare is going to bust in with the UHC police and do something. Yeah. Right. Right. It's weird because they, the insurance company has put themselves in a position where they have the physician to negotiate against the patient that they're supposed to be serving when it's doing something like they're, that. Right. Yeah. So they're completely leveraging and trying to use certain negative tactics with the doctor. And then mm-hmm. every single year they say, well, we're going to pay you less. Right. And it's not just the insurance. And there, there again, it's our practice was bought out by a larger company. And, and so you have non-primary care people buying up primary care practices and, and applying very business-like metrics to those practices. And, 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 and then you have other stakeholders, all, all of the ancillary services that are kind of bought into that organization who require the family practitioners or, or the, the providers to give them patience, mm-hmm. right? Mm. And, and that's, yeah, everybody is kind of getting a little love except for the patient. Cause, and, and there again, it's, it's, it's a little interesting to talk about this because never did I walk into a patient room and think, oh yeah, I think I'm going to order an MRI on this patient, you know, based off of any metric. It was always because I thought, the patient needed an MRI, but I think, I think the moral injury of it all came in not being able to sit down, hear the patient, you know, truly encounter aporia with him. So that's a new concept that, that has been a Did key you say word. Aporia? I said aporia. So one right? of the things that we like to do on this show is language time. What yeah. is aporia? <laughs> okay. This is great. So I got this from, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> John Verveke, he's a cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto. He's one of my favorite. It's a V-E-R-V-A-E-K-E, John Verveke. He has a a 50-lecture series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It is fantastic, right? Uh, So so aporia is, is that which causes you to change your frame. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or truly learn from. Uh, so, so one classic example of this, and uh, Dr. Verveke uses this example in his uh, lecture series, but it's that nine-dot problem. And and so this is that uh, logic problem where you have nine dots, three rows of three, right? And then you tell the person, okay, uh, connect all the dots in four lines, and you can't pick your pencil up off the paper, Okay, and and then they have to solve this. Well, it turns out that in order to solve that problem, you have to literally cause a frame change. You have to 
break out of the box. But whenever you do, you see that there was some way of thinking you you weren't even considering. Oh, okay, so here's another example. And and this is important because this it I encountered it, uh, encounter it on a daily basis now and I welcome it and it I feel that it fuels my own self-learning and then my team's learning uh, and my relationship with the patient. Okay, so uh, my daughter was, my 13-year-old daughter, she was taking a math exam uh, a few weeks ago, and she read that word problem. You could just see on her face. You see, like, the, you know, the WTF moment, right? <laughs> you know? And it's like she didn't know what to do with the information in there. She didn't know how she was going to begin to even, like, think about solving. And you could, like, you see it on her face and, and, and I'm standing across the counter from her. I, I go, wait, hold on that. What you're feeling now, that's aporia, Right. And, 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 and then we were able to kind of step back from the problem, look at what are some techniques she could use? You know, how could she cancel some of the answer choices out? Not looking at the math of the problem, but looking at maybe some of the more creative elements to see if she could break frame. And, and, and so that is something I get to really explore with my patients now. I get to sit down and I say, okay, what's your problem? And they tell me their problem. Oh, here's an interesting problem. Okay, I'd like to hear what you, you think about this. And I'm not going to provide any HIPAA uh, information in this, but I did tell the patient that I thought their problem was incredibly interesting and I was going to talk about it to everybody. Okay. Okay. So, so I have a couple that calls last week and they're, they're remote. They were local, but then they moved and they just didn't bother getting another primary care provider. And, and so I still see, see them very, uh, through telly and, uh, and, and so the husband calls and, and his wife is a middle-aged diabetic in good control, right? Uh, but has some risk factors, cardiometabolic risk factors. And, and, and so the husband says, okay, listen, I don't, I don't believe this necessarily, but I have a good friend and she's a psychic. Okay. Of like 30 years. And, uh, well, she called me and, and she's a really good friend. She called me and she told me that she received some, psychic thing and and my wife was going to die next week from a uh carotid stroke a carotid induced stroke and uh i don't know what to do so so that uh, there there is a moment of aporia because my tendency okay being a a, a scientist is mm -hmm. to say Oh, okay. Yeah, you shouldn't just get that out of your head, right? There's no way the psychic can know that, right? So that's my, like, tendency. But then I step back from that and I just, okay, I'm going to call you back. Uh, and we go out to lunch as a team and I present that. And then we end up with this, like, really seedy debate. Like, you know, whoa, this is crazy. You know, there's there's no way she could know that. And it's like, what do you do? Like, how do you prevent 
something on on this basis. Uh, and so I called him back and I was like, I mean, we had a much longer conversation and well, it turns out we're getting a carotid ultrasound on her and, and actually put some telemetry on her and then checked labs. And so far everything's good. Right. But then I got to step back and say, okay, that's a really odd situation. And these, these aren't like crunchy granola, like weird people anyway they're like fairly normal people and they're coming to me because they had this very strange thing so it allowed me to enter an aporia with them to say okay i've never encountered this before i don't know you know you can't lock her away in the hospital Mm -hmm. right like that would be unreasonable but do you like dismiss this yeah the psychic and maybe you do but man, you got to go to bed at night, and so so that's well, a tough situation. Well, what's interesting to me <clears throat> is that, regardless of where that information came from, yeah, the mental heaviness on both the husband and wife, yes, is the key to this situation. Agreed. And so I get people all the time that come to me and they're like, "I am really scared that I have pancreatic cancer." Yeah. You get into yeah. it and you're here and you're like, why? Well, my best friend just died of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. We go through the logic. Will you feel better if we do? I don't think you do. And, mm-hmm. and you know, but pancreatic cancer is just like a, a small example, but I get that all the time when somebody has a close person. So whether it's a psychic that said it or whether it's, I had a dream about it. Something implanted this really uncomfortable notion in their head yeah yeah so in this case you and your team resolved to take away that mental weight and be like you're good it's perfect you're good right right knock on wood we're good yeah it's like it doesn't seem like the psychic was correct well but is it worth the long-term worry of someone you mm -hmm. know building up cortisol and suddenly now we have a physiological response to just simple long-term worrying and sure right and and you never know exactly so that kind of branches into another thing that i've found that direct primary care allows us to enter into uh because of the way this model is structured and and it's it's this idea of self-scientific study so 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 that's real uh, interesting. So that that's that's appear into what I think is just one of many benefits of this setup. So you just said it right there is direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm say it again. Yeah, direct primary care. Direct primary care. Now right. I mistakenly, um, before we even clicked mm-hmm. on the cameras, thought that there was a massive similarity between that and another popular term that emerged, I guess about 20 mm-hmm. something years ago called concierge care. Yeah. And they're actually not the same at all. Turns uh, out they're not, they're not, they're definitely not. Yeah. So let's talk about the differences. We, we've kind of walked through some of the, <laughs> the, the clamps on traditional setups, especially if you're right. in an ACO or a, a, you know, an institutional backed admin heavy setup and then what you're doing. So what, What's what are the differences? Oh, okay. So, so I make the claim that concierge is for rich people. Okay. Right. Yeah. Sounds and, like and, it anyway. Yeah. And, and basically we are, our, our average patient monthly membership is $75 and, and really like we as a team are, are about figuring out what the new model of primary care, the new normal people 
model of primary care looks like. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, it's, and, and you can wax on that a little while. And it's really interesting because it's like, okay, if you think of like, can I use the term bougie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you think about like bougie medicine, like constantly. As long as Eric medicine. doesn't get offended because he's bougie. Yeah. yeah there you go. Okay. There you go. Well, that sounds like I just gone through. <laughs> we use it all the time like on the Emporia. <laughs> yeah. To make right. This happen. Okay. So new new vocab. Uh, bougie. <laughs> the uh, so so bougie medicine is whenever you know it's it's like you might text your primary care provider if you had have a sore throat and they might treat you like you have strep, mm -hmm. right? So that's very common. But predominantly, if you're going into the office, you're going in for a massage, maybe some Botox, uh, the bougie services, which are great services. I mean, I don't want to, it's like, I, I love my massage therapist, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the, uh, but it's, it's not really meant to be accessible, mm -hmm. Uh, as far as cost goes, mm -hmm. it's, it's like bougie services are meant for kind of wealthier people. And, and we are situated in, in an area that is half rural and then half urbanized. And, and so we, we, it's really kind of kept us at a very accessible level and, and, you know, I, we've even had to close our panel, you know, uh, after about six months after opening, we were feeling like we were getting too many patients. Mm -hmm. And and after six months, wow. Yeah, yeah. And and we weren't we actually per provider, we have more patients per provider now, but we feel like we know our patients to the degree where, you know, somebody texts me and I'm like, I know exactly who I'm talking with. Right. I and and what I talked with him about two weeks ago and, or what he previously came in for, or what the current aporias are that we're kind of grappling with. Um, but we try to keep it like 500 patients per, per provider max. And, and that's whenever, uh, and this has kind of become industry standard direct primary care industry. It's, uh, when patients feel like they can get the attention that they need at a reasonable time scale. Mm -hmm. um, usually that same, same day, you know, that's kind of the standard. I think that's kind of come from the direct primary care practices. Uh, and, but in a provider, can feel like they are properly taking care of patients. You're looking at somewhere between four and 600 patients per provider, like the full panel and which equates to, you're going to see, uh, okay. In a, a traditional family practice, you're going to see 1% of your patients a day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. One, 1%. Yeah. The, your patient panel, uh, now, and that wax and wanes, obviously, uh, in, in direct primary care, you're, you're going to see slightly more than that. Right. And, and, and so at the at our old practice, my nurse practitioner and I had a panel size of 30 to 3,500 and, and not even that specific, but thereabouts, mm. uh, which equated to, you know, very properly like 30 to 35 visits a day. Uh, but, but here it's, it's a much more reasonable, like four to, to six. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have a heavy day and I might see 
four people in the morning and four people in the afternoon. Hmm. But it's just so much more personal and dialed yeah. in for specifically what it is that they are coming. Mm-hmm. You don't have any misconceptions of why they're visiting, why they're calling. Right. And with a patient load that's one-seventh mm-hmm. compared to the previous patient panel, I would imagine that the acuity of exactly who this is or who this family is is top of mind. That's exactly right. And and so and the patients know, you know, we know the patients before they even sign up. Right. You know, because we are screening, we, we're trying to pick the patients we can help the most. And then we're trying to convey to those that we don't feel like we can help that, okay, they, where they should go to seek proper care. Um, and, and, but there again, I would say we accept when our panel is actually open, we're, we're accepting 85 to 90% of the people who are uh, applying it's so it's awesome. fairly open. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's really interesting because I went to your website and you're very upfront about the cost and mm-hmm. it's very reasonable, extremely reasonable. Yeah. Like, I'm wondering how you're paying the bills. Kind of <laughs> right, right. That's- <laughs> um, and then when we look at uh, my colleagues who have gone concierge medicine, mm-hmm. because I get patients that'll be like, I'm like, oh, you know, what to, oh yeah, so have you seen Dr. So-and-so? They're like, no, they're concierge. They're not taking Medicare. They're not doing this. Uh-huh. I'm like, what's that model? And then it's a flat out upfront fee every year mm-hmm. and then it's cost per visit that they're doing and so they're it's so, wow yeah and so it's like i'm like oh so you're just buying a ticket it's like a, joining a country club to mm-hmm. see this person it's like a seat license it's like a seat license and so that's the model and of course it, and i totally get it if they're if they're in a sure. situation that you're in before and this is the model but what i really like about this and i i, I wrote this down there is this current movement that mm-hmm. we're seeing because of Atrantil and the, uh, you know, the other natural products that we're into, I've kind of migrated more towards this functional medicine uh-huh. thought. Yes. And so there's two schools that people get frustrated with traditional medicine. Then they go to a functional medicine doctor, which True. started out fantastic. But then the functional medicine doctor has to order the test to pay the bills, has to do this. And it's not a cheap test. You know, yeah. it's like the, the Dutch test, like the most yeah. common test used. All those. And don't get me wrong. I love the Dutch test, but it's like 400 bucks. You and know? so then I end up getting this full circle of somebody yeah. started traditional functional, two or three functional doctors, stack of papers, 20 grand in the hole. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay. So what I really like about this is that it's, you're taking the time. And what people like about the functional medicine mm-hmm. doctor is that they get time. Yes. Right. They get a lot of time. Yeah. Good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And this direct primary care, the ability to talk and listen, and we were all taught this, the answer is in the history. Mm-hmm. If you have enough time. We were. Absolutely. It's, it's like, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you exactly what's wrong with them and they're going to be right. Yeah. Right. And it, at least to some, like some degree. It was when I first started my practice, it was interesting to me because I mentored under Leonard Woods, Woody, who's a physical therapist. Uh-huh. I was going to be a physical therapist and he conv- I did an internship with him and the year into med school, he said, just watch what I do and mimic this. And mm-hmm. what he did a really good job of is shutting up. Yeah. What's up, Lucky? <laughs> What's happening? And they'd be like, ah, nah, nah. and then almost when I first started practice, I thought it was so weird. Patients are so in tune to being interrupted that they'll stop talking. Yes. And then you just go, go on. They're like, oh. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then if they talk for five minutes, you have your answer. Uh-huh. And 
But if you're having an agenda, having to think of what tests I'm going to order, already have a preconceived notion. Yes. It's like you just, you, and it, it was fascinating to me. I'm like, why do people keep, why do they all stop talking in the middle of a story? Mm-hmm. You interrupt me when I'm telling a good story, I'm pissed off. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <In> fact, <laughs> well, that, that, that creates like a phenomenon that we've seen is, is that there, there's a period of time whenever somebody comes on board with us that we have to just converse with them so they get past that because if okay if you have a sore throat and you think it's strap it's just a handy example right and and you're knowing how the doctor's appointments going to run and wanting to achieve a certain end you're going to preload as a patient you're going to preload like a certain narrative in your head that you're going to show up in there you got seven minutes you're going to deliver specific keywords as to why this provider should give you a steroid shot and antibiotic right and and so that like agenda is comes preloaded in patients and then there's a like a, a relaxation stage that has to occur with the mm. direct primary care to where we're just sitting around we're just hobnobbing with the patient we're just kind of getting their story so they don't have to show up with an agenda mm. it's like literally we want what's best for them and they want what's best for them and 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 so we're on the same page and 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 then uh one thing is been really interesting is we promote patients like challenging we promote google dr google and we say yes look at dr google learn about what you think is going on and then show up and then let's talk about it Mm -hmm. and because the patient ends up becoming getting a little more uh, or a lot more kind of aware of and and a lot of times dr google doesn't produce the right information there's some debate on whether chat gpt does because that's a smart bot right there. Uh, But the uh, patients have really kind of delved into their symptoms through Google. They've expanded their medical knowledge, probably on some things that they're not dealing with. And, And then we get to come in and say, oh, yeah, I don't think that's it. And this is why. And it really kind of tests us. What you just described there was kind of formulated a question I was going to ask and you kind of halfway already answered it. Uh-huh. I think that when it comes to some of the chat GPT and other AI that people mm-hmm. can interact with, they're really only as good. Number one is the technology that drives it. And number two, possibly limited by the filters that are put onto it by whoever the author is. Yeah. What I'm interested in is it sounds like you've already put yourself in a position of saying, Go and find out everything you can find out. And then when you physically come in, I'm going to have you describe it to me. Mm-hmm. And let's see where the intersection is between what the computer says and what I see. And let's figure out what's actually happening. Yeah, yeah. And and to mobilize patients on sure. that front. Uh, they feel like they maybe they're you, a little bit more in control of what their care is, too. Yes, exactly. When it first started happening and people and doctors would get upset and they would put those plaques, you know, just because mm-hmm. Google says this, you know, I'm still the doctor, whatever. <laughs> You're right. But what's what I have seen the evolution of that is that, remember, it's all algorithms. Uh-huh. You put in anything in Google and eventually Google says you're going to die from it. Right. Exactly. And so then patients come in panicked. They do. And I'm like, I know Google said that you're going to uh-huh. die from that, but the reality is this is the 99% chance. This is what's going on. The 0.1% chance that this, 
And so there's a, there's a lot of that algorithm that gets to this point where everything uh-huh. is just, everything is doom and gloom because people keep going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. And, so, so now combine that with the traditional family, uh, practice or traditional primary care and, and they are f- trying to get the message out. You know, it's like they, they're suffering from this. They've looked it up. Google says this. They have to convince then the provider that Google said this about them, but maybe not say Google because they know they're going to be shunned for that. And, and, and then you can see why the medical provider would then get frustrated by Google. And, yeah. and, 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 but it's, it becomes fun banter uh, around the office now. Do you know, I just, it just occurred to me because I'm sitting here saying that, but dude, I've had shitty days. I've had shitty days where I'm running behind and yeah. I'm not able to focus enough. And cause cause we're human. Right. I just got called by the hospital cause the person is bleeding out and I need to get over there and I've got eight more people to yeah. see. The ability to have a relationship with a patient where the patient knows you well enough to go, go hey, doc, you all right? And you're like, you know what? Kind of having a shitty day. Let me tell you what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Like for instance, when you have kids, it's if my kids have anything going on, right. my happiness is immediately brought down to my saddest child. Yes. That's it. You know, because that, if there's something going on. That is true. And yeah. It's, and so, you know, it's not always you're bouncing in and be like, hey, you know, whatever. Yeah, and then somebody says days. a Google review. I heard he was fun and happy and he was just not. And you're just like, I'm, I'm effing human. Yes. I carry baggage in. People would like to think that doesn't happen. It's a but, hard job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so, then all of a sudden somebody's telling you to do that 35 times in a day, 40 times in a day. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know how primary care people do it. It's right. It's like I hold in highest esteem my uh, colleagues who are still in the system, who are still getting paid by insurance, right? And and because man, they are like warriors. They I don't know how they do it because I got to a point where I just couldn't do it. And we, my nurse, oh, I remember the day it was December fifteenth. Okay, so hope I don't get teary eyed just talking about this, but. Uh, walked into my nurse practitioner's office and we were like, I was like, we're done. Hmm. We're done. And, and so we literally typed up our three month resignation, took it down to the office right then. And, uh, and then she was fired within three to four weeks. Like they, they kept her on as long as they need her there and say, okay, you get out of here. Uh, but I sat down that night and then wrote a manifesto and I actually posted on my website, but it was kind of my clearing the air. And it very much kind of felt like that. It's like telling the story of, okay, we're getting away from this broken medical system. It's just absurd. Well, then let's talk about how important primary care is. Because it seems like people don't talk enough about a good family practice doctor or an internal medicine oh, doctor. Yeah. And the way the system is, I had a long discussion with my son about this. We were uh, we were listening to the Robert F. Kennedy on Joe Rogan. Yeah, oh, yeah. So we yeah. Were pausing Listen about, to that one. Yeah, no. pausing about every, every few minutes. He's <laughs> right. like, wait a minute. And we discussed how the current medical system is dependent on chronic disease. Yes. Somebody that what, when I was training, so I'm from Nebraska originally. So we did, they really pushed primary care. I did some of my most fondest memories of medical school where I had lived three months in a small town uh-huh. helping the family practice doctors out because that was, 
it was, it was, yeah, it was part of our cool. requirement, but it was super fun. Yeah. Like I'm out there living in like a little house and they're uh-huh. delivering babies with them. And then I'm running Back the ER in the at night. Day, yeah. That was like the good old days yeah. too. Yeah. And it was, it's that person is necessary to, and we'll get into more of this, but I saw that you have a full script link on your, mm-hmm. you have a counselor on staff. Yeah. Getting in front of the chronic disease. Yes. Is the primary care's job. And that will literally mm-hmm. fix the system. So when Robert F. Kennedy said, whatever, how many trillions of dollars are spent on our healthcare costs? Right. We could take that money if we stop this cycle. And, and flip it. And flip it. You can yeah. take it to low, econ- you know, you can take it to, to food desert places. And the way to really fix everything is to take people out of poverty and let them become, yes. let them, let them give them the opportunity to sort of, get out there and there's this huge industry which is big agri big pharma big hospital right whatever whatever is keeping it going it's necessary it's hydra it's hydra yes and to get in front of it and Mm -hmm. you know as i think it was peter atia that described it he goes our system is like this now he goes we're just imagine if you have to save all these eggs Mm -hmm. and you can put the eggs i don't know it was some bullshit analogy but basically he was saying our system is you take the eggs to the top of the hospital and you start throwing them off and your job is to try and catch it right before they break catch as many as you can yeah just quit taking the eggs up there (laughs) yeah it's it's true that reminds me and i won't say which company but when i was back linked with a pharmaceutical in in the pharmaceutical industry Mm -hmm. i remember i was young very impressionable kind of still excited about I felt like embarking upon a career or at least something with a pharmaceutical company back then. Mm-hmm. And an older guy, and looking back on it, he's probably seasoned and just didn't really like being there that much, but he uttered something and he said, well, and we were talking about some subject, but he just essentially just said out loud, you know, a, a patient who's cured is a lost customer. And I heard That's that. That's harsh, man. And at first I thought that was kind of funny and then he wasn't laughing and I was like, God. And then, of course, a few years goes by, and I and, uh, saw behavioral mm-hmm. practices within the pharmaceutical industry, and I was like, "He's not wrong, and this this isn't for me." Yeah, yeah. So let's not even start with what basically the pandemic has done to the hospital system, mm-hmm. and the way that hospitalists are now employed by everything, right? And they're just given protocols. Yeah. Don't think. Yeah. Here's your protocol. Well, that's what we're given in our medical education. Uh, and, and I feel like I don't, I've interacted with med students a little bit, but this this one thing that's interesting is like during COVID, I got a uh, notification about like not putting misinformation out there. And, oh. and, and I actually let my board certification lapse on purpose. Okay. So I can't have medical students right now. Uh, but, but I've, no end in nurse practitioner sh- students. So lovely people they are. Uh, but the uh, we, we've kind of gotten into a protocolized medicine, uh, a protocolized way of thinking about patient care. And, and I personally feel like that has kind of, this is 
like Dr. Malrada, the cardiologist, Indian cardiologist, uh, British cardiologist. Oh, uh, oh Malhotra. Malhotra. Yeah, Malhotra. 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 Okay. Yeah, Asim yeah. Malhotra. <laughs> Indicator, we don't know how to speak. <laughs> <laughs> right. The uh, Even before COVID, he was raising this kind of concern about the capture of uh, cardiometabolic protocols by the pharmaceutical industry and and with in his case uh in regards to statins Mm -hmm. and and so you know like there's nothing new but i think medicine or the practice of medicine practice of primary care okay that's what i'm really talking about it has been captured and protocolized and and whenever you look at our professional journals for instance it's just you can just see it there. It's it's just written through the entire journal. Like they they're driving a business. Totally agree. And when we when we went to our latest conference together, uh, Ken and I have had conversations about this, and I think we mentioned it on on one or two of the episodes. Uh-huh. But the people who are the pioneers still, the ones who I felt like had the the most. Uh, courage and probably the most confidence in Mm -hmm. standing up for what they thought was correct for the patient specifically for the patient everything was patient centric were those who were a little more tenured a little older Mm -hmm. and i feel like that the training has been geared down to where we're not necessarily training for the next physician we're almost training for the next technician Mm -hmm. you're just given a rote of protocols or algorithms, different ways to make these decisions. And it's not that the younger med students aren't incredibly intelligent and weren't heavily filtered before they got put in this position. I'm literally criticizing the change in the approach to the education of the med students. Mm -hmm. So, so this is interesting. And and this is kind of where my uh, Socratic optimism comes out. Okay. So, so I think you could take anybody trained in any way and and if you honestly set them in front of these types of problems mm-hmm. th- and 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 didn't unnecessarily protocol protocolize them so so you didn't unnecessarily take away their capacity to explore and think creatively right and 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 this is why it's called a medical practice and i know that's nothing new like we've known this but you see you take a person Okay, that's semi decently educated, and you put them in front of patient problems, and those problems are going to grow that person and grow that that person's ability to hear other problems and and then attend to those other problems. Attending, yeah, and and so that's and and if anything, we we've captured and removed the ability for providers to in in the open like encounter and then learn learn themselves right they go to conferences or they do cmes right that's how we learn as providers oh we did a whole thing on the the dietetic association where they're completely owned and they require the people to pay a fee and get the cme right and their own screw that yeah screw that i want to i want to learn how i learn best and that's like you know not maybe in a journal. We can well, see me oh, and yeah. CEU so now is kind of you know, it's everything's joke. So and it, when I was Google sponsored lecture. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's real. Um, 
when I was in medical school, these, the big wave of evidence-based medicine just showed up. Yeah. And so everybody wanted to talk evidence-based medicine. So what we'll do is just, we'll look at the data and I was getting a lecture on, um, back pain in, you know, big auditorium. And the person put up this slide that said, um, it, as it turns out, the physical exam of a patient is completely irrelevant based on evidence-based medicine. You cannot predict it, whatever. And I, I was like, okay. And so they're like, you know, that's, that's what evidence-based medicine. So we don't, we don't recommend uh -huh. doing that. And the first thing I remember just thinking, I'm like, you're not touching the patient anymore. <laughs> right. You're not doing the thing that doctors, yeah. you know, like you're literally saying, oh, because there was some data here. And then of course, while I was in there, well, did I say while I was in there? Pretty good, uh -huh. man. I'm trying to yeah, talk country you, here. You I'm trying to talk country. Yeah, you're doing awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, while I was there, then new studies were come out. And that was like the big nurses study that, uh, uh -huh. you know, you give all the patients estrogen, they won't get heart attacks. And, oh, no, they're all getting heart attacks and whatever that was. Right. Then all of a sudden it became this debate of like, hey, I think we're learning that maybe it's not black and white. Right. That's the key here. And once I started saying, don't do... XYZ, then you started seeing these other pathways of medicine like chiropractors blew up yeah. because people like being natural paths. Natural paths. Yeah. All the you functional yeah. people that it's it's true. And and like maybe medicine is really an art. And and one there was this pivotal book I read during med school and is the social transformation of the American uh, of American medicine. And, mm. and it w it's basically a history of American medicine and, and how MDs basically became the quote unquote doctor. And, and it's very interesting because at the outset, it was actually a fairly open field. You had, uh, you know, what, what are pharmacists? They are, uh, you know, deals with herbs and, uh, and I'm having a brain fart. Like a, a, a pharmacist that only deals with herbs? Yeah. 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 So, so like an herbalist. Yeah. Well, you had herbalists and then you had what essentially became chiropractors. You had what essentially became who were surgeons. Okay. Which kind of the, the surgeons kind of became our MDs, you know, through history, through I think the, the development. surgeons started out as barbers. Barbers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You'd be yeah. like, so you want to trim that up? No, get my gallbladder out. <laughs> so we kind of, you know, at the start of American medicine, we had this kind of wide open field. It could have gone any way, you know, like chiropractors could have, you know, if the market dynamics hadn't happened the way they did, mm. and then and the government, the regulatory capture didn't happen the way it did, then M MDs wouldn't be considered "quote unquote" the doctor. It's like any other of the medical professions might have. Right? I mean, there is. Eric's heard me talk about this too many times now. Since I did pharmaceutical research got into the natural space by developing mm -hmm. a product, discussing science in a completely different way and discussing it with a colleague or somebody and they say the same thing. And this guy, that podcast you had me listen to today. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, was that? I don't remember his name, but he is the president of Natural Products Association. Natural it Products. On, it was on concrete. Yeah, it was on concrete. It was because uh, he, uh -huh. uh, he has a company that is a .org that is saying we need to use supplements. Like we have the mm -hmm. benefit. And so he went through the history of the pharmaceutical and all this other stuff. And then he said, but it's the classic example. And I was like, ah, I was like driving. Yeah. I'm like, this is exactly it. He's like, you go to a doctor and you say, I, it, I, I read that this is that. They immediately dismiss it. Get off that supplement. Supplements have no science. And then 
right. you can go and the, the science that doctors will quote, and I've had this thrown at me, I mean, if probably a million times, uh-huh. that, oh, well, there's, there's no science on that. And I'm like, I have stacks of because good. I'm actually looking for the science. Right. I'm not waiting for an effing drug rep to show up and show me the science. Right, right. What was the thing that we talked about on Malone's podcast? The Gilman amnesia? Oh, Gilman amnesia, yeah. And then... Uh, was it... It's called Gilman amnesia, right? Yeah, I believe so. This is an interesting concept. Uh-huh. Okay, so the whole basis is this. You open up a newspaper. Mm-hmm. You happen to be an expert in golf, Okay. And you're reading an article about golf and you're like, this is total bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I can see, right. I mean, this is, oh my gosh, they're, they're completely wrong here. They're completely uh-huh. wrong here. They're completely wrong here. What BS. Then you turn the page and you start reading an article on something that you're not an expert in. And you yeah. automatically, you, the Gilman Agnesia is that you don't, you forget that the article you just read was bullshit. So the next one you read that you don't know anything about, you assume is 100% correct. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and it's like uh reverse, it's, it's almost like confirmation bias, right? You know, it's, uh, we have a tendency to confirm what our beliefs are, to look for the thing that confirms our beliefs, okay? But this is almost like a reverse of that. It's like, okay, if you know nothing about a subject, you're more likely to believe in its validity. It's almost like right? you're getting molded believe and what you don't you're even know told. it. Yeah. Yeah. I think... So my philosophy as a physician has always been to understand the physiology and the pathophysiology. Yes. So when somebody brings something in, let's first see if it fits, if it is plausible. Forget if there's science. Is this yes. even plausible? Yeah. Then let's take to the next level and then we can start looking up because as it turns out we live in a big world mm-hmm. and this internet thing lets you look up stuff and I'm always in the uh, R&D process of something. Yeah. And I will come across something from 1998 that is just jaw-dropping. Right. You're like, some dude in Thailand figured this out and nobody mm-hmm. knows about it? But it's been out there. Right. But nobody's, dude, there's, I mean, it's just, yeah. think, think how many amazing people that are probably, that could do, you know, world record holders in anything, but they're working on a farm in Vietnam or something. And, yeah. You know, and it's just. They're poverty stricken. Yeah. Right. There are some brilliant people out there. And, and I'm generally an optimist because I uh, I talk with really smart patients and, and I think patients have gotten smarter in the. I don't know how long I've been practicing 2011. So, yeah, the 12 years that I've been out, the the short time that I've been out of residency, I feel like patients have gotten more intelligent. So that's really interesting. It's like, and, and people are generally listening to more long form discussion, you know, not just me. I mean, yeah, but God, I listen to hours worth a day of some various podcasts, but my patients are also doing that. So all of this stuff, though, I'm glad you brought that up. All of these changes mm-hmm. like that, I think are symptomatic of what people are inherently wanting to do, probably mostly subconsciously, but people are seeking out direct care because they don't like the model that they're getting. They don't get enough time with the, with the physician and they feel like that they're, they need to be listened to. They're going to long form discussions similar to this because they're tired of realizing that what the evening news was as they were growing up is for whatever reason, not to be trusted by them. Right. For whatever it could be. 
Right. I mean, whatever, uh, you know, slant that they feel like they just feel like there's more to the story and a flash in the pan is not going to explain it to mm-hmm. them where they can make an informed decision. And maybe that's not all Americans, right. but that's like, uh, it's emerging. It's, it's Joe Rogan's audience. I mean, you know, a, it, there, there weren't concierge. There wasn't direct care. There weren't those things until they began to bundle. Yeah. Family physicians into groups, just like you described yeah. earlier mm-hmm. to do these kind and, and inherently people didn't, couldn't put their finger on it, but they knew it was wrong and they yeah. didn't like it. So they want to do something different. Do you know what Eric brought this up when we, when I was looking at your website, what I really like is mm-hmm. you offer an opportunity for Medicare and Medicaid people to not be funneled into those two things. Right. They have the option to come in and pay a membership. Yeah. And we were talking about this before. If you're somebody that has a family history of cervical cancer and you need to really stay up on your pap smears, but you got fired from your job Mm -hmm. and you found out that it's really, really expensive to get insurance and you have a $10,000 deductible and you've been walking around with that $10,000 deductible, a membership to say, I'm going to save up, I forgot what your price on pap smear was, but um, to save up a little bit of money to make sure I get that annual Mm -hmm. thing that I'm at risk for. Yeah. But you're talking like 125 bucks. That's it? Yes, yeah. Sir. That's all. Yeah, for a pap smear. I mean, so so it's like, do like if it's I really necessary. feel like this is a setup. Like after this podcast and we go yeah. off air, you're going to be like, yeah. all right, guys, so I'm broke. <laughs> I need right. some. <laughs> you just need to sign up for a condo. <laughs> yeah. It's a great time. Sure. Yeah. You're going to love it. That is extremely it's crazy. Okay, so whenever, in, in that period between leaving my job and, and like working out my three months. So, so, so I, I ended my job, uh, at the old clinic. And the next day I started my job at the new clinic. And, and so, but in that like three months of finishing out my tenure there, uh, I, I, we were setting up like Casey, wasn't working at the old clinic. She had already like transitioned over. She, we were getting everything like up and going. And so we're negotiating with lab core our like lab pricing and the, uh, my nurse at the time printed off these prices and I was looking through it and, and, and a one C was $6. The cost of an a one C for me was $6. Okay. And, and then I walked into a patient's room who was bitching, (laughs) right. About her hospital bill. That's outstanding for an A1C of $85. So surprised it was only 85. Right. If it was a, yeah. Right. You mean she was, this was, she was an inpatient in a hospital. Yeah. She was a Medicare patient. I, I remember it to this day. I remember the patient and, uh, yeah, a Medicare patient who had just been hospitalized, and for some reason, the this A one C bill had fallen out of her like set of charges, and she got a separate bill for the A one C, and and which was kind of absurd anyway. Uh, and and I guess it you know don't get me to understanding like Medicare billing within hospital billing and all that stuff, but. Uh, she'd got the bill from the hospital saying she owed the money for the A1C that wasn't covered by Medicare and probably because it was billed inappropriately. But then I looked at this bill and they were billing her $85. I just looked at this lab course sheet that said an A1C costs $6. That's nuts. And, and just near, I just had a, yeah. Well, we, can, flush. we can go, we can go on and on about this. Yeah. We, I do my colonoscopies 
at a freestanding surgery center, mm-hmm. very safe, all these other things, it costs five times as much when yeah. you do it at a hospital. Yes. Five times. Yes. And it's ridiculous. You got to pay for the administration at a hospital. Like somebody's got to pay for the administration, right? It takes yeah. an army of people to run a hospital, and, and those people deserve to be paid appropriately, right? Uh, hear that, Brad? Yeah. Brad is Eric's brother who was a guest on his podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Quick question for you in your model, because so far I think it's absolutely brilliant and I love it. And I I like the idea of you not to put the cart in front of the horse, but the Mm -hmm. idea of using your model and you could, I don't want to say franchise. And it's not my model. I stand on the, the shoulders of giants and, 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 but the, uh, you know, I read several direct primary care books before mm. even like, well, not before I jump ship, after I jump ship. I tend to do that. You know, I don't do my research before. I just like jump ship and figure it out as I'm going down. But uh, it's, it's like there, there are other direct primary care practices around and and i want to say last i googled there was like 16 in the metroplex that were like concierge they were like direct primary care and and so anybody can get on and they just type in dpc or direct primary care like google that and that's going to give you a set of practices that are probably pretty close and Mm -hmm. and the general consensus among dpc providers is we're all extremely happy that's great. Yeah. It's like, we love what we do. From a business model, one question for you before yeah. I forget. How do you handle referral to specialists? Yeah. Okay. So, directly. <laughs> so, yeah. It's uh, basically, uh, well, if we need to call the in, the, there's some hacks in the system. So, so if I have an insured patient, most, most of the time, I can just send a referral Right. And I can actually do that through, I don't know the system, but my handy, uh, very knowledgeable assistant, Kathy does. Uh, but she has some website that she signs into and she sends the insurance referral through. And most of the time it goes through. Then you'll get these really seedy, uh, fraudulent insurance companies and, and, you know, like, uh, blue class, blue shield HMO. I don't have any, you know, uh, problem saying that's a fraudulent product, right? Who feel like you should go to their doctor in order to provide the referral to their specialist. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right? So they have to they they have to be referred by a primary doctor in their network yes. or they will not approve anything. To a specialist in their network. Got it. Yeah. Right? And and we won't even like get off onto like the details of why that's fraud. But uh the it turns out that, that people can be referred from an urgent care visit, a quote unquote urgent care visit. And and what's that? That's a code. Okay. Well let's maybe this is what we're talking about, like the codification of meta medicine of within the art of medicine. Yeah. It's 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 like you put an urgent care code on a visit. Uh so yeah, what does that mean? The, as far as patient care goes. It means absolutely nothing except that like the code goes call, through. Yeah, like I could call and be like, hey, dude, I got this patient and she's 
really thinks she's dying and I'm kind of worried about her and, and here's what I've tested and, and like have a conversation or write a note that expresses that. And that's like the spirit of the referral. Right. You know, it's like I'm seeing this patient. Here's the story. Help us figure it out. Uh, but within the insurance realm, we've totally codified it. And, and then we've uh, inhibited proper communication because of that. Sure. Oh, you know what's super yeah. neat is when you order something and it is denied. <laughs> and you're like this something that 100 percent is not denied. Right. And if the provider feels this, so you have to make an appointment with their other providers so yep. you can have a debate about it. Yeah. And it's always at an inconvenient time. I do time. it all the time. Do you? Yeah. So you have the time to do it. I'm like, yeah. who expects me to call at 830 in the morning uh -huh. for a 45 minute call where I'm arguing with somebody that this person needs yeah. X, Y, Z. It's a bureaucratic hurdle. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And, and so that's, yeah. Now, I love those calls and, uh, because I get to really kind of point out the absurdity of the situation. One time I did, I had a, uh, poverty stricken Medicaid patient who comes to me. Okay. Who is, uh, he's in his sixties, he's cardiometabolic disease, diabetes, and that's a bear. Right. And, and so I prescribed a fairly reasonably cost continuous glucose monitor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I've, for months I've been like Dexcom or Libre, which one Libre. Like? Okay. Well, okay. It depends. Like I like Dexcom, but I really like Libre because it's base market. You know, it's like, you know, bare bones technology to get the job done and be affordable. Uh, okay. Right. And, and, and then, but for like my type ones, man, like so many pumps talk to Dexcom so much better. Yeah, that's true for like my type ones. Dexcom. I only say that because yeah. I ordered a bunch and I've I've warm around and then it's like shocking how many of the foods that I really like. Uh -huh. I watch what happens to my blood sugar. I'm like, that's why I like that Thai food. Yeah, so <laughs> I'll get in. That, that'll get me into another concept. But like I wrote, uh, I prescribed a Libre two with a reader because this he doesn't have a cell phone. Right, he didn't know how to properly yeah. function. So, but if you gave him a reader, he could and and watch his blood sugar and his A one C actually responded to the CGM alone, hmm. and 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 like he lost like a point. I don't know specifically, but but like a point in three months because I was throwing office sample CGMs on him. Really? He'd come in every two weeks and I'd, I'd throw, and then I'd call the rep and I'd be like, yeah, we need some samples. And then they, she'd come out back out. And, and so I, I prescribed it, knew it was going to get denied. It got denied. And I literally threatened these people with like, okay, I'm, I'm seeking permission from this patient to send this to my congressman. And, 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 We'll see what happens. Right? Wow. I hadn't heard anything on it, but uh, but typed up everything, included the medical record, got the uh, the signature page, and we're going to send it to our congressman because Medicaid can't they can't deny this guy right. this thing. It's our tax dollars. Yeah, and he's just going to get sicker and become a bigger burden. Right. Right. On the on the medical system, 
So it's, it's cool kind of having the space to do that. But where, okay, so like you said, you wore around the uh, CGM uh, for a while and it was shocking. And I love those for that reason. I love just giving that, putting that on patients who are otherwise non-diabetic and, and saying, okay, let's watch this data a little bit. Or you'll notice I have a whoop band on and I've worn this for two years. Uh, and, and it's, it's gone from my left hand to my right hand, but I'm constantly like doing self-scientific studies. I'm, you know, I'm deciding oh, this week, I actually haven't had any coffee this week. Okay, so so because I'm doing a little self scientific study, I'm watching that whoop data. I'm kind of asking myself how I feel, and and so far, you know, it's Thursday. I feel pretty good. So I, so I'm drawing some signal from my own self scientific study. It's like okay, I might get, I might be all right if I go without coffee. Is there and 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 that's like the signal, and then I get to branch that into a further scientific investigation and, and say, okay, is coffee right for me? Uh, and, you know, maybe watch my uh, sleep uh, scores like over a period of time or something like that. But, but Libre is real handy because it's 75 bucks mm. cash pay for a month. Okay, for two Libre sensors. Yeah. Uh, some pharmacies might want to like, you know, price it up and they, they, We'll make the claim one twenty five. The company assures me seventy five dollars. It's a handy number. My only concern with you dropping coffee is many Americans. That's where they get uh, yeah. their polyphenols. So yes. I just need to make sure that we. Oh, and, and my poop. I'm. I am slightly. I'm not slightly. I'm moderately more constipated this week. But we just need to make sure that you get polyphenols. So I'm gonna. We're yeah. gonna chalk you full of some Atrantil before you get out of here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's. Uh, and 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 so for my audience, can you give me the polyphenol plug? And and I have very, uh, very intelligent audience. You know, that's tough. I just, yeah, this is now we're going to tap into something that I've become extremely passionate about okay. because nobody talks about it. Quickly think of it this way: we tell people to eat their fruits and vegetables. We, they have micronutrients and some vitamins. The real reason is, is because they have polyphenols in them. Uh -huh. The polyphenols are poorly absorbed. I discovered doing research that the reason why I put these three particular polyphenols together is because they're the largest, most stable polyphenols. Okay. So cabaracho and chestnut are massive. Okay. And then that means that it doesn't get absorbed, which means in the small bowel, which is what I was using it for, it gets rid of SIBO and bacterial overgrowth. But then yeah. that was what I did the original research on. But then over the last few years, we've been working with other scientists, and the real magic is this. If you have the right microbiome, then your microbiome breaks them down into beneficial, smaller phenolic compounds. Okay. For instance, cabracho and chestnut have been shown to contain quercetin, uh -huh. green tea extract, urolithin A, urolithin B, so all these things that people are going and buying. Mm -hmm. And the kicker is, those are poorly absorbed. You still need the microbiome to help with that. Yeah. So we know that polyphenols are the anti-aging, anti-inflammatory molecule of mm -hmm. the Mediterranean diet. That's what makes the Mediterranean diet healthy for you, the healthy fats and the polyphenols. Right. The but it's having the microbiome to actually support the proper cleavage of these larger polyphenolic molecules down to 
utilizable compounds. Utilizable compounds and things that are anti-inflammatory for the body, like butyrate, which goes okay. over the whole thing across the blood-brain barrier. The beauty is studies were actually done also showing that you can improve microbial diversity more mm -hmm. using polyphenols than even fiber. So everybody keeps saying fiber, fiber, fiber. Right, it's forever, yeah. But, but, but the polyphenols, polyphenols are with bacteria. That's mm -hmm. how it is. Plants and dirt have coexisted since the dawn of time. Yeah. And they work together. The polyphenols themselves, the belief is that it's a, a deterrent to insects and stuff. Uh -huh. But it actually works really well for us. We've evolved with it. That is so and interesting. And so like my massively transformative goal before I kick it is I think I can cure dementia. Uh-huh. And the reason why it's so important to me is I just came back from a trip from Portugal two weeks with my family. Mm -hmm. The memories I have there. Yeah, that's. That's so important to me. It's. You know, that uh, it's so important in right. our life that to sit there and think that if you eat a processed food diet, uh -huh. the epidemic of dementia is, is, is more common than not. When we talk about on that podcast. I think, I think that's like obvious, right? You know, it's, it's like, and, and maybe people are starting to catch on. It's people a in the functional realm. Yeah. People but. in the functional, but nobody's talking about the, about the polyphenol science and the science exists. I would agree. In yeah. fact, I went to a conference, GI Alliance had a uh -huh. conference and they had a, a professor emeritus come in from South Carolina, North Carolina, someplace. The title of his talk is <laughs> probiotics for the gastroenterologist in this. And he gets up and he was just like, probiotics don't work. When are we just going to stop it? He's like, I spent my whole career studying them. They just don't work. What we need to do is figure a way to manipulate the microbiome. But unfortunately, there's no science. Now, mind you, I'm going to Croatia with Eric to give a lecture yeah. on anti-aging and the microbiome. Yeah. And I'm, I've got like a stack like this. I'm like, there's no science. What? I mean, at <laughs> least looking at the science in traditional probiotics. I saw on your, on your full script yeah. that you, that you like Megaspore. We've teamed yeah. up with Megaspore as well and developed Atron Teal Pro yeah. because spore-based biotics are a totally different thing. Totally different. Yeah. So anyways, the common, actually the, the real, the real thing is the combination of the spore-based biotic plus a polyphenol. It's like putting the spores into a little vessel uh -huh. that delivers it to the colon and then they wake up and they both improve the microbiome and they both help right. cleave these molecules quicker. It's so. like giving, giving the good substance with the, the tool to unpack it. Yes. Right. That's yeah. And even when I'm listening to other people um, like David Sinclair, or, you know, he's got a lot of hype on the anti-aging. He did yeah. a study on turning Harvard on Sinclair lab all and, that. and yeah, the uh, sirtuin. So it's research. the sirtuin pathway. Yeah. So that's the Adele diet, the cert diet. Yeah. So these polyphenols turn on the sirtuin pathway. That's and so that's where the hormetic effect that they discuss it, you know, the slight, that's what exercise is, a hormetic effect. It challenges your body a little bit, so it adapts. Right. So that's how the sirtuins get turned on. And it's just that complex. And all of a sudden you're just like, oh, the science is amazing. It's whatever. Da, da, da. It is. It is. And it's, it's nuts. And you're like, yeah, shit, just eat your veggies and eat whole foods and right. your and, body and will figure it out. Get a good night's sleep. And, and, and then watch your like recovery. And, and it's like, we live in a really exciting time that we we are delving into these biochemical pathways to the degree and understanding them to the a degree that 
we seem to be able to. Um, this it, it, interesting. Uh, several months ago, I had a patient that came to me, and he was like, "Oh yeah, what do you know about BPC one five seven? And and I'm like, "What?" And 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 so he was like, "Yeah, I know a guy, and and he got this script for BPC one five seven. I looked up, and he hands me not hands me, but he sends me like a stack of research on yeah. this, and and like rat." data you know and so which is really interesting uh patients sending research articles uh and 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 then sending me down a pathway of functional science and not just about peptides but but about a lot of the stuff you're talking about there and 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 so i think like the world is opening up to bigger ideas i feel like you know it's in in medical practice it's if a physician is um, open to be being guided by what that provider's patient needs, okay, let me restate that. If if that provider is open to being guided by the needs of patients, patients are kind of becoming more aware to these newer things and 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 hormone you know, replacement being like a very good area that's seen a lot of popularity uh, and a lot of advancement too. But it's, and, and, and so my patients are pushing me to look well, at that, different Well, yeah, things. that's a, I'll get to my point here in a second, but like looking at your model, mm-hmm. if you could get every freaking person out of those, those damn tea clinics and you could see them for, yes. for that money and you could give them proper testosterone therapy. Then that's huge. That's huge. And yeah. they'll save money. What we're just, what I just hit me, what we were talking about today with Mike at our level 10 meeting, mm-hmm. the type of uh, discussion with the heuristics Oh yeah. And either all gain or all gain uh-huh. or cautious, all, cautious mm-hmm. medicine has traditionally played the cautious route saying you're, right. if you don't do this, you're going to die. If this is going to happen, you're going to yeah. have this. And what's happening now is people are educating themselves and they're, they want the gain. Yes, they do. They want to yeah. hear the positive side of this. They, they want to come to you and go, this is, I'm doing some anti-aging research. I found uh-huh. these peptides, hormones, right? Yeah. All of the, I think the gain it's it, more people respond to that than the cautious. And, and I think that's like, should be properly like discussed by well-meaning like providers. Okay. So what does that mean? You know, like, what does that mean in how medic medical ethics wise? Right. You know, how do we, how do we properly seat that within what we're trying to do in the clinics? Like I'm going to solve your, your strep throat. Oh yeah. I'm, Actually, let's think about why you even got strep throat. Yes, right. You know, yeah. let's let's think about this, and 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 then that like seems to naturally run into the gain heuristic, right? Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, I can optimize my nutrition. Okay, that's one way to fully address my immune function. So, so to speak, uh, I can optimize my nutrition, but how can I optimize my mitochondrial function? Right. You know, good question. Then we're talking about like NAD plus infusions and we've moved into the gain heuristic and, and, and it's, 
it's really interesting. And then I have to say, you know, so NAD plus is really expensive and this is how much it costs to get. And you can go to this IV center and you can get it and you can pay 250 bucks a dose. And, and some physicians are saying, okay, well, you should do this like several times a year. And as you get older, you should do it maybe more times a year. Uh, and, and maybe it just means that as your income rises, you should do it more times a year. Like that's possible too. It's like, I, I try to, convey like a very healthy uh sense of that in my patients um but yeah if if patients are going about the gain heuristic with a sense of scientific skepticism and they're doing it carefully and and uh and and under the advice of a well-meaning provider what i love is that you're doing your reading because if you go to certain functional medicine circles, uh-huh. it's an echo chamber. Yeah. And they're just repeating or parroting. And, but if you do the homework and look at this, and you're like, okay, that's where this makes plausible sense. Right. This is possible. So my big step here is, does it get absorbed? Do you have the right microbiome to get the maximum benefit from it? Right. I just want to highlight one thing, though, about absorption, because thinking, and you were talking about it earlier whenever we were talking about uh, Autron Teal and polyphenols, because just because something can be measured in the blood doesn't mean necessarily that's where it belonged before it took action or was broken down or cleaved in Mm -hmm. the microbiome. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to curcumin and a few other of the polyphenols, you have people that are are talking about that they need to make it more bioavailable. So they put it into some type of pseudo-refined, you know, let's just, they'll put it into like a, a, a a lipid uh, ball of some kind so that it gets uptake. But the problem is, is that it's not resulting in better health for the patient. In fact, it's actually where it wasn't supposed to be when in fact you should be measuring the result uh, by the, short chain fatty acid production or the metabolites that mm-hmm. circulate from it, making its way to the colon. And that's, you're See, exactly right. You have to find the performance of this and you, you can't just walk in and say, well, we'd have to check the blood to see if this works. So in my world, we're seeing more liver injury from curcumin. Yeah. And I believe it's because people are trying to manipulate it in a way that the body's doesn't want it using like that. it incorrectly right, right. Yeah. So, so that that's interesting like maybe you have to have the whole compound in order to you mean like nut, nature intended yeah you know like you it's like <laughs> you take the peanut and 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 you eat the peanut it it might be fine but then you you make peanut butter and it's like maybe less fine Right. It's still good, but I mean, less fine. But then you make peanut oil out of it and then you fry other stuff in that peanut oil. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's like the refining, the, the heuristic around that yeah. is, you know, what we're learning as time goes on is that nature gives us what we need in, in appropriate packaging. Yeah. So and now you start to ask, why is it that people are starting to look so deeply into natural things? Shouldn't we always be looking for the next new technology? And what I think is before everyone's mm-hmm. eyes now is, so Ken talked about um, Alzheimer's and another big passion of yeah. his is treating kids with autism. Well, if you look at autism yeah. in 1980, and these, these numbers were quoted to us by uh, Elizabeth Mumper. In 1980, the rate of autism was one in 5,000. Yeah, one one in five thousand. So, if you had a town 
of 100,000 people, that means you've got 20 kids. 20 kids out of the town of 100,000 mm-hmm. that need to be treated for their autism. Granted, those numbers, by the time they reach publication, they don't test kids, I don't believe, until they're either eight or five. It takes them three years to collate all the numbers. So by the time you actually have the numbers, they're already between eight and 11 years old data. Last year's numbers says that that rate of autism has gone from one in 5,000 in 1980 to now it's one in 36. So Mm -hmm. that town of 100,000 where there was only 20 kiddos that had autism is now over 2,600. Yeah. 2,600 kids now in this town of 100,000. Okay, so I like how you broke it down there. It's like you you took those figures and you related it into, you know, uh, really relatable figures. And, and what you're saying is like you're going from 20 kids in a town of 100,000 to how many? Over 2,600. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's noticeable. And yeah. you, you said a while ago that your panel of patients has been reduced down to 500. If they were to deliver the same kind of care that you were, mm-hmm. it's going to take five docs to address just that town for just that problem right. versus, you know, before those 20 would would have far more acute care mm-hmm. and we're trying to figure out what's going on. The only reason I use autism and number one, that, that number's fresh in my mind and number two that same thing's being repeated in Crohn's. It's being repeated in ulcerative colitis. The increase of right. chronic disease is going up. So I think that people are looking for physicians that think differently. Mm-hmm. They're looking for alternatives to always being hustled into a pharmaceutical solution, I guess is what I'm getting at. Right, right. And and so I, I think we also have a much more intelligent base definitely yeah and, and we're, we are getting sicker over time and and i don't think it's obvious you know i think there have been some good ideas but modern life is a complex yeah. thing right there's a lot you know it's like I, I read every day something about our technologic engagement you know with doom scrolling right and, you know and the how that affects like the psychological narratives that run through our head and maybe our uh, uh, strengthening of the story we tell ourselves about ourselves in the world. And, 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 and so, but then I look at what, you know, my kids are eating for breakfast and it's like, yeah, okay, well there it's in that too. And, Mm -hmm. and it's in this idea that people are not like having to call and talk to people on the phone. You know, it's like the iPhone came out in like nine. Uh, 2007, right? That was just like a blink of an eye ago. Sure. Yeah. And like in the nineties, I see, I got my Motorola. No, Nokia. <laughs> was it a bad right? I got, I got my Nokia. <laughs> my no, Motorola flip flown came like in 2001, but before that it was like the Nokia that was 1996. Right. But before then, if I had to be reached, I'd be reached on a landline. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or get on your bike or not get reached. Yeah. Right. And, and so it's like there, there are certain elements of modern society that have changed. And I make the claim like, okay, the Dr. Pepper and the Oreo were healthier in 1980 than they are now. Maybe. Right. You know, that's. Well, uh, we've done episodes on, on PUFAs, on the oils. We've done yeah. episodes on, on high fructose corn syrup. And when you, with data, you look at it, you're like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like even, and it's like, okay, well, this is just correlation. Like the PUFAs or the, the, the intake of PUFAs over the, and this is what Dr. Kate, I can like, yeah, that's, I love Dr. Kate sensational. It's like, she's got good data. So I, I point patients to her all the time as uh, Dr. C A T E Dr. Yeah. Kate Shanahan. Um, but uh, what she's shown is like the intake of polyunsaturated fatty acids has increased over the past 70 years, okay? Uh, and it maps along our uh, increase in American syndromes, metabolic syndromes. And, and man, it's a, and while it may not be causal, although I think I've seen enough to kind of, you know, say in my patients, it seems to be causal, this. Uh, but it is a strong, strong correlation, strong correlation. Uh, so what's interesting is I've actually witnessed a closing of the triglyceride HDL ratio after decreasing somebody's intake of these hateful eight oils. Yeah. So, and, and them also feeling better from it. Uh, Myself, I actually, I did a self-scientific study on that. Yep. <laughs> and, and I saw my heart rate variability increase the next week, like 15 points. Uh, whenever I got rid of Hellman's mayonnaise. Because mm-hmm. I was eating a lot of Hellman's mayonnaise in the form of ranch dressing. So thinking I was doing a good thing. Because I was eating a salad. <laughs> Yeah. 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 But I was pouring on, uh, seed oils and, and, and doing that quite often. And, and whenever I said, okay, I, I'm going to play around with this. I'm not going to do the seed oil. I'm going to do any seed oils this week. And my heart rate variability jumped. And then within three weeks I was seeing like real actionable, uh, benefit in how I felt not, aching and painting, getting mm. up from the bed, you know, little things like that. And, and so I started really fully engaging with this idea with patients and, and seeing what benefit what she says could bring to them. And that's great. so, so all that to say, all that to say, we don't really know why we're so unhealthy. We have a lot of really good ideas, but we all need to be like doing scientific analysis like self-scientific analysis and seeing okay what 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 am i doing that's making me feel bad or might be making me get older okay prematurely Mm -hmm. that i should be examining and how do i examine that and playing around with like creating scientists and everybody and and that's kind of we've moved within enzo we as a team have moved out of this space of okay we're getting out of this horrible medical system and more we found this the space developed that okay we're really going to try to engage our patients like scientific mind you know it's like like bring them into their own care and 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 really kind of guide them in that and and maybe create the the family practice the modern family practice right where patients are learning about something and they're really kind of interested in something for their own health and so they go to their provider and they talk about it with them and 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 they craft like some actionable study you know that can help the patient get to the desired end Mm -hmm. which is 
to draw some actionable conclusion. So, so yeah, it's cool. Enzo Direct Care. Enzo. Yeah. So tell everybody how to how to find. Yeah. So it's www.enzodirectcare.com. Uh, Enzo Direct Care. Doc, Brad, Fagley, thank you so much that for joining us on the show blast. today. Thanks sure, for having me out. Absolutely. And yeah. come back and then... When you having us on your podcast? Yeah, I guess soon, right? <laughs> That's the, right. Uh, so we're gonna check you out at Whiskey yeah. Bros. Don't yeah. forget that you can find that on Spotify and on iTunes as well. Yeah, anywhere else they can find Whiskey Bros. Yeah, Apple, uh, YouTube, YouTube, Whiskey Bros. Around the table, got some cool video shorts. Nice. We tend to be foodie and community people. That's what that's, that's what awesome. our big claim is, and we love it. So uh, yeah. this week's uh, raw portion is going to be the. Before we got started, so if, uh, <laughs> that's right, we had, we had some uh, good conversation. Uh, but uh, anyhow, be sure and check us out on locals. You can go to gutcheckproject.locals.com to become a member. And of course, we're here on Rumble and uh, we'll have a short on YouTube. So please like and share. Ken, anything else? No, that was great. And I'm, I'm pleasantly optimistic that primary care is heading in the right way. Yeah, me too. Because of people like you. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. We'll Mm -hmm. see y'all next time. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this episode of The Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get gut checked.